You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Miranda. And this is Abraham. And this is Shane. What? All three of us. Three people today to talk about a pretty interesting topic. But first, um, guys, I got this. I got this really cool necklace. I wanted to show you. It's this. It's this Firestone. If you want to like look right into it, just right okay, there, looking, just looking at it. It's very I cool. I see it. Yeah, just keep looking at it. Okay. Just keep if you're listening, just imagine you're looking at a Firestone. You're just looking that's at a Firestone, waving back and forth in front of Miranda's face. You're just following it back and forth. You're taking a deep breath. You're breathing in and out. I'm totally enthralled. Yes. It's very good. And you're thinking, I might do all the edits for this episode. <laughs> I might do all of the social media and and say that Miranda did it so she gets all the praise. <laughs> Is it working? <laughs> when I snap my fingers, these things will come to be. Uh-oh, half oh. the world just died. Oh, did it, did it work? Oh, no. I don't feel so good. Are you okay? Gentlemen, you there? I'm feeling compelled <laughs> to edit something right now. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about something that seems to live a little bit between the worlds of like magic and mysticism, but also psychology and science. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> and, it, you know, it could be seen as like a party trick or maybe a therapeutic intervention or something maybe a little more nefarious. But um, today we're going to be talking about hypnosis. Ooh, spooky <laughs> scary so this is a really vast topic and it's full of a lot of interesting history and also some controversy so today um just to narrow in we're really going to be talking a bit about the introduction of hypnosis uh, its uses both you know the the good and not so good and then also some explanation for its apparent effects it, it is pretty interesting, too, because I think this shows up a lot in, let's say, skeptical angle, where people don't necessarily, even those who are sort of scientifically literate, don't really know how to feel about it, right? So that's exactly right. We even put up a poll kind of on our, our social media, which asked, you know, hey, hypnotism, is it an intervention, a therapeutic intervention, or more of a party trick? And and overwhelmingly, people asserted that it was more of a of a party trick that it doesn't necessarily have these therapeutic benefits but um we'll we'll see kind of maybe what the science says about that a little bit on this episode all right so miranda uh what is this so the mayo clinic has a really great definition of hypnosis that i'm just going to read now quote hypnosis is also referred to as hypnotherapy or hypnotic suggestion is a trance-like state in which you have heightened focus and concentration Hypnosis is usually done with the help of a therapist using verbal repetition and mental images. When you're under hypnosis, you can feel calm and relaxed and are more open to suggestions. Hypnosis can be used to help you gain control over undesired behaviors or help you cope better with anxiety or pain. It is important to know that although you're more open to suggestion, during hypnosis, you don't lose control over your behavior." End quote. All right, so uh, Miranda, what's the difference between uh hypnosis and hypnotism and hypnotic suggestion so really the terms are often used interchangeably but there's kind of different venues in which these different things are used so there's you know hypnotherapy which is um, a therapeutic intervention used to treat you know a variety of ailments anxiety depression pain all those types of things that are are more traditionally treated you know with um 
other forms of therapeutic models. You have things like audience hypnosis, which is, you know, for entertainment and is done on stage. It includes, you know, some compliance responses and and pre-exercises to identify who's maybe a bit more susceptible to being put into a hypnotic state. And um, then you... So it's not just turning people into chickens, basically. No, <laughs> but it's often, that's often the product. All right, so what's interesting about hypnosis is it comes from a pretty rich history, and uh, it actually started with a German psychologist named Mesmer um, back in 1857. So he came up with the concept of animal magnetism, which actually kind of discusses the idea that there is a force or fluid in the universe which exerts control on living things, and he believed that the fluid could be manipulated by waving hands over another's body and moving the fluid in that area in order in order to promote health. So uh, kind of like dipping your hand in the water and that ripple effect around that organism. Um, Is this like the force from Star Wars? Uh, I wish. <laughs> so close, <laughs> so close. And uh, so what's cool about that though is it, it, that, that's where the term mesmerize comes from. It actually is derived from this guy's name. Um, so that's the, when you hear the term mesmerize, it actually comes from mesmer and in this idea of hypnotism from the beginning. So yeah, it's good stuff. So. Over time, uh, you had people that kind of took on the animal magnetism stuff and kind of built on it. So you had this uh, this surgeon named James Braid. And James Braid actually was a Scottish surgeon. He wasn't German. And he was considered a gentleman scientist, which I thought was an interesting term. Uh, the idea being that he was a an innovator of treatment, uh, independent from governing bodies or institutions. So where Darwin may have been working with a local institution to develop his research, this guy was a gentleman scientist. He was not involved in any of that stuff, and he kind of self-funded a lot of his uh, his own research. Uh, so he actually kind of built on this idea of, of animal magnetism, um, and you know, kind of picked up steam over time. And then uh, what we see too is that uh, Sigmund Freud actually started using hypnosis before he got into psychoanalysis. So it does have some roots in psychology, which I think is pretty neat. Exactly. Yeah, and there are, as we were saying, you know, there are some therapeutic applications for hypnotherapy in addition to kind of the more entertainment-based uh, uses. So I actually have a quick a quick story. So my my husband is uh, he cannot swallow pills. He can swallow regular sized bites of food, but if it is a pill, he cannot swallow it. So he gets all of his medication in um, liquid or, or chewable form, or wrapped in cheese. And so this. Or wrapped, you know, a little pill pocket, um, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> um, just, you know, however however we have to get it down. But as a teenager, he um, was put on a medication that did not come in a chewable or liquid form. So he was actually sent to a hypnotherapist to try and get him to be able to swallow a full pill. And how he describes it is that, you know, he was put in a very relaxed state. He was, you know, kind of led through some, some deep breathing and um, was given a pill. And it actually got partway down his throat before he kind of noticed that it you know it was it was beginning to go down his esophagus and he kind of kicked out of it and and ended up spitting it up so um you know he it, it didn't really work long term but you know it did get him to a place further than he had ever been before and being able to swallow a pill which um is pretty interesting and, and it does sound like an, an interesting experience to say the least so did it stick can you swallow pills now it did not no. <laughs> No, no, it was it was not successful long term. But there are some other applications that we'll get into later on that um, do have some better implications for its for its therapeutic effects. All right. 
You know, as far as the history goes, there was also uh, another person that we discussed in our intelligence episode, uh, Al- um, Alfred Benet, before he got his start in intelligence research. And he was actually the guy who ultimately developed the first ever IQ test. Um, he was originally doing research in hypnotism. Um, and he ended up stepping away from that field when it, his sort of mentor and, uh, and teacher was discovered to be essentially a, a charlatan, a fraud. And, uh, and so he had to sort of apologize for that work and, uh, and decided to lean more toward what seemed like to him more, uh, I guess, scientifically grounded psychological sciences. But that's not to say that there isn't some science around um, hypnosis. So, uh, so what are some examples of some of uh, therapies of, um, and some of the research in pop psychology and whatnot? So there's quite a bit that looks into hypnosis as a form of pain management. And there was one interesting study um, that I wanted to summarize where this uh, researcher named Montgomery and his colleagues, they tested the effectiveness of a 15-minute pre-surgery hypnosis session versus empathic listening um, in a clinical trial. So empathic listening being, you know, um, where a a doctor listens to the concerns of of a patient and and just kind of validates what they're saying and and provides them with with an empathic ear. So um, he ran this clinical trial with 200 breast cancer patients, and his findings were summarized in a 2007 article where the team reported that the patients who received the hypnosis they this resulted in less post surgical pain, nausea, fatigue, and discomfort. And also interestingly, they found that the hospital saved about $772 per patient in the hypnosis group, um, mainly due to reduced surgical time. So they were able to uh, decrease the amount of time of the surgery. Um, I'm not sure exactly on what end they reduced it. I, I'm wondering if that's um, getting them prepped and putting them putting them under if they were um, there was a little anxiety there, so they were able to do that a little more quickly. But yeah, the patients who were hypnotized, they required a lot less of the of the medication used to uh, sedate them during the surgery as well, which is pretty interesting. So there's some research too on needle pain in children. So what the literature kind of shows is that there is some strong support for distraction and hypnosis that results in reducing pain and distress from needle procedures. So um, the quality of available evidence was low, so we couldn't really pull a whole lot from it. But what they found were characteristics of distraction interventions for children. Uh, we talked about they talked about child age and the risk of the bias showing some influence on treatment efficacy. So while there is some stuff there, we didn't get to see a lot of it. And uh, there needs to be a little bit more research in that area to kind of improve upon uh, some of the findings that were within that that literature. Exactly. And there's this really cool um, video that we'll link to in the show notes that, um, you know, obviously we're talking we're talking about both distraction and hypnosis. And I'd say that this is a, a, a good example of something leaning a little more towards distraction. But there's um, this video of a, of a little adorable little baby about to get its vaccination and the doctor uh, doing this little song and and tickle play, so to speak, with a uh, capped needle with the vaccine where he's just kind of tickling the baby and making little sounds. And he goes ahead and gives the baby the vaccine and the baby doesn't cry at all. Um, you know, she seems to be pretty happy and, and distracted and um you know, seems to be not bothered by the pain from the needle at all. So, yeah, um, as as Shane was saying, there does seem to be some evidence uh, that maybe this is effective in in helping to um, abate some of the pain around needles with children. But there are a lot of factors to consider and some things that 
make it a little unclear. You know, I noticed that my whenever I need to go in for a dental procedure and I get shot in my gums, my dentist will like, he'll sort of like, uh, I don't know the word is the right word for it, but he sort of like shakes my my lip or my cheek nearby, um, and I and I'm like 99% sure this is a distraction technique. <laughs> um, I sort of I've been compelled to tell him like you don't really need to do that, and like I can I can take being stuck in the face with a needle. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I'm like you know it also doesn't hurt yeah. uh, for that. And uh, and actually, I think it's a f- even if, when I know what's going on, it's been effective for me at feeling like I, I noticed it less. Um, which I think is also interesting in um, an upcoming topic. Hopefully uh, I've planned on discussing the psychology of pain and experience of pain in general. I think that there's something inside of that with distraction. Also. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's gotta be some stuff on, on like, uh, like children too. I mean, you, we see that it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon where we're pulling teeth. Like, you know, you distract the kid. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, bink. And you pull the tooth out, you know, before the kid realizes it. So uh, I wonder how much research there is on that distraction piece. We'll have to look into that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the most common things I hear about um, uh, from people who talk about hypnosis and when it has been effective. And I know someone personally who's reported this, that they're, you know, they had like a parent or an uncle or something who was a chronic smoker. And then they went to a hypnotist and it was like, boom, it was over. Um, no more. Uh, they never smoked again after that, even though they had been, you know, uh, a habitual smoker for years up until that point. So what's what's some of the research on this? Yeah, so in 2015, there was a really interesting meta-analysis. And so a meta-analysis is a scientific kind of summary of the of the recent research of a particular topic. So this meta-analysis was looking at the research on smoking cessation. And they found that the results when it came to hypnosis as a treatment were fairly mixed. And there were a few factors with this. Um, one of them being that hypnosis is often used along other forms of therapy like cognitive behavior behavioral therapy. So it's really difficult to parse out its true effects as a standalone intervention. So on, on this, there's there's been some ideas about uh, what hypnosis is and how it works. And, uh, and I think it's always worth pointing out that, uh, and you mentioned in a really important way, I think one of the critical things you mentioned when you were defining uh, hypnotism is that um, people still can control their behavior. And so uh, one of the, I think the things that's misunderstood in hypnosis is the idea that people are put in an altered state where they are, they can be influenced to kind of do anything. And some of the research has shown that people can lie under hypnosis. Um, people will not do things that will gener- re- generally result in significant harm to themselves or others. Well, under the, uh, hypn- even those who seem like they're really susceptible to the experience of being put under hypnosis, um, that they're not actually in a totally altered state. It's not like the movie stir of echoes where they you know are almost in another reality and they have absolutely no control or awareness over what happens a lot of times they do have a lot of awareness and generally pretty good control over what they're doing as you sort of mentioned they're more suggestible and able to uh follow those directions but they aren't going to do things that they would completely not ever do just because they were hypnotized that's exactly right. And it's an, it's interesting because within the field or hypnosis and those who practice it, this is a kind of an ongoing debate on whether or not a trance-like state is a necessary component. A lot of the people who are using this therapeutically, they, they believe exactly what you just said, which is, you know, that, that it's not that they are in a completely different state. It's often said that no one who has been 
hypnotized is going to do anything that they are not able to do if they weren't hypnotized. Um, it is just that, you know, the being, being put in the state of, of relaxation maybe um, opens them up to some, some different ideas which might affect their behavior um, moving forward. And, and to add to that too, I'm, I'm curious as to when we talk about hypnosis and kind of as a general rule, like there are different types of hypnosis, which, you know, at the end of the day, probably have different purposes, right? So some of them might be to influence behavior. Some of them might be to pull information from the individual, right? So depending on what the, the purpose is. So you, I mean, they're, they're, you know, over 10 different types of hypnosis. Some of them's like past life regression and things like that. But um, some things, I guess it would depend on the purpose of the type of hypnotherapy too that you'd be looking at or like what would be, they would be trying to implement. Exactly. And, you know, we're not getting into too much here, but there are some pretty nefarious uses for um, hypnotism or what has allegedly been described as hypnotism. So um, one example is uh, Robert F. Kennedy, his assassin uh, in his most recent appeal plea stated that part uh, part of his plea was that he had been um, hypnoprogrammed to commit this act. So, you know, there, there are definitely some accounts out there that say, you know, this, this, uh, this has been used to have people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. There's also was um, an example, a case out of Canada where a woman, a woman's testimony within a murder trial was, was later thrown out as inadmissible because she had given the testimony after she had gone through a hypnotism session. And actually the, the Canadian Supreme Court now does not allow any, any sort of uh, witness statements or anything that were either done within a, a hypnosis session or after after hypnotism to be admissible within court so that's just something that's interesting as well so has there been any good like sort of behavioral research on hypnosis and sort of how it works and like conceptualization and all of that more conceptualization than research for sure all right so one of the factors they look at from the behavioral perspective would be uh learning history and experiential accounts so um things like being predisposed to being able to follow rules from authoritative figures you know uh, you have some individuals that are more likely to listen to a doctor or somebody who uh, holds a position of power. Some people who are going into these types of settings are maybe primed to this idea of being in a trance state. So they're more likely to exhibit behaviors or fall along with cues based on that that priming of being exposed to trances. Uh, and you and you see that too. You can see this in some of the in the audience control techniques where uh, somebody who is reaching out to the audience, they're kind of testing the waters to see who is going to be more susceptible to those suggestions to that authority figure type of you know element that is in that environment in that culture at that moment so uh you see that a lot with learning history in particular where individual learning histories can actually impact those types of scenarios and those types of settings that's exactly right and like as you said when it comes to the more entertainment focused side of hypnotism hypnosis you do see the hypnotists really take advantage of that so i have a, a, a brief little anecdote from my high school graduation party, uh, which is a school-wide graduation party that was held overnight where we had a, a hypnotist come come into our auditorium and he picked about 15 of my classmates, uh, newly graduated seniors just out of the audience and brought them up on stage. And he went through uh, several exercises where he had them following directions and, and started with some deep breathing, then moved very quickly into, you know, okay, now do this, say this, um, pretty rapid fire. And I recall specifically he picked up there was a there was a classmate of mine who was pretty skeptical who was kind of looking around smirking and um he immediately 
went ahead and called her out and t- had, had her sit down um, in a very funny way. And and um, then he went into this whole show, which was really funny, where he had people do crazy dances and um, fall in love with a broom and act like a chicken. And yeah, you definitely saw, though, the people that were up there, you know, these are people who I had gone to school with over many years. They were the people that probably, you know, they, they liked attention. They were a little more on the popular side. This wasn't necessarily out of the realm of something that they would enjoy. So it made it made sense that maybe they were, you know, willing to kind of be up on stage displaying all of these these silly behaviors under the guise of, you know, being in a in a trance, so to speak, um, being uninhibited in that way. You know, what I think is really interesting is that there's this whole idea of sort of of being just, I guess, uh, th- there's some like relaxation techniques built into this, where you're trying to get someone essentially they're uh, they're you're they're calm and you've sort of lowered their uh, inhibitions, if you will. But uh, otherwise, you sort of put them in the in this idea of this relaxed state, and that's actually pretty similar to a lot of techniques that are used when people are doing meditation. And so, some people have actually looked at some of the research that was comparing the similarity um, and brain activity specifically between those who were in sort of what you might call a hypnotic state compared to those who were doing those meditative sort of exercises. The outcome of that was that there was, you know, sort of mixed. You saw generally that there was some differences and some similarities and unfortunately just not a lot of clarity between, uh, you know, whether or not that was exactly what was happening for those people in a hypnotic state. Um, it, it just was a little bit unclear. Um, in addition, there are some forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, which will also, uh, you know, attempt to employ some hypnotic techniques alongside those ones that are empirically validated. Of course, that means that it's hard to separate out which components are working. Um, if it's the hypnosis or the the cognitive behavior therapy or the combination or what's happening. So that's always something to keep in mind. And I think you mentioned something about that earlier. And then uh, there's mindfulness meditation. Um, And this has been actually pretty a lot of science is really backing up the mindfulness meditation as far as um, the how effective it is at certain psychological issues and how people interact with it, especially when it comes to things that deal with uh, things like relaxa- relaxation, anxiety, maybe perhaps dealing with pain and sleep and, and those kind of things. Um, it's, it's coming, you know, it's a little unclear where uh, all the conditions under which this is likely to work or not, but a lot of people are finding utility in that mindfulness meditation and and science is supporting that in some of these things um, and it'd be great to you know do a, a really nice deep dive on on some of the research on, on mindfulness and what has come out of that um, and then you know take that skeptical angle and say you know what what might else be what else might be accounting for this but it is that worth saying that perhaps the therapeutic hypnosis approach does share some of those similar features to meditation and if it works it might work because those features of meditation also work right Exactly. Just like you said, there's some science that's perhaps backing it up. Um, there's some features it shares with something that is a little bit, has a little bit more support in science. So we'll get into it more with the take homes, but there's maybe something there. I think though, if we want to talk a little bit more about behavioral science approach, you can't leave without talking about Dr. Israel Gold Diamond, who was a prominent behavioral scientist in the 20th century. And he and his colleagues actually did a lot of research into perception. And love Gold Diamond. Great stuff. It's not a beach read by any means, but great stuff that he produced. So one thing Dr. Israel Gold Diamond and his research partners did was they did a series of experiments based on 
other researchers' experiments into hypnosis and hypnotic control. So what they did was they essentially replicated these experiments and they checked to see if they could account for what was being represented as hypnotic control to see if they could identify other mechanisms that were maybe a function of this hypnotic control. What they did was they they placed hypnotized subjects, the subjects were hypnotized, and then they were seated on a round piano seat and they were told that they were being rotated and the seat wasn't touched. They weren't actually rotated. And then they were told to stand up suddenly, which they readily did, no problem. They just stood right up. And then another person was called into the chair and they were rotated rapidly. And then they were told to stand up suddenly. And of course, as they did, they spun forward and fell. So the hypnotized people saw this demonstration and then they went ahead and sat back down in the chair. Again, the seat was not rotated for these people who were hypnotized, but Gold Diamond went ahead and, and told these people, hey, stand up. And what they found was that the, the people now having seen the demonstration of the people who were actually spun, they, they spun forward and they fell down. So there was a catch to this otherwise convincing demonstration. So the demonstration subject was rotated in one direction, clockwise or counterclockwise. And then when he fell, he fell according to the laws of physics, the laws of inertia. That is, he fell in the same direction that he was spun. So with the stationary hypnotized subjects, they were told they were being rotated. But they were instructed that the rotation was in the direction opposite to what the model had just demonstrated. So, of course, this hadn't been pointed out to the hypnotized subjects. And all of the participants fell in the direction of the demonstrated direction rather than the direction that would actually happen as required by the laws of physics if they were actually spun the way that they were being told as hypnotized that they were being spun. So uh, Gold Diamond gets a little witty here and he, and he states, quote, if we are to be consistent when we state that the data of hypnotic perception are not governed by the usual laws of perceptions, then we should also state that hypnotism also countermands the laws of inertia as evidenced by the direction of falling. Accordingly, hypnotic data seem to pose problems that require reformulations not only for psychology but for physics as well end quote so essentially what he's saying here is that there has to be a simpler explanation for why the subjects are doing their best to comply with this demonstration comply with the instructions rather than some sort of hypnotic control and essentially what gold diamond and his colleagues come up with is that there's there's an indicator behavior that comes alongside hypnotic control or hypnosis. So if someone is hypnotized, there is some sort of behavior that indicates that they are. In the case of this particular experiment, it was that they fell even though they were not actually spun in this chair. So Gold Diamond comes to the conclusion that what really is in play here is a really strong bit of instructional control. So essentially these participants were under not hypnotic control, but rather the instructional control of the researcher and of the demonstrator who provided the model of the spinning and the falling forward. What I love in particular about this experiment and about Gold Diamond's account is that this is a really great example of a scientific assumption called parsimony. And what parsimony dictates is that the simplest account for a phenomenon is most likely the correct account. So in our case here, rather than relying on this idea that 
hypnotized individuals have had a complete change in perception. Their bodies are now under control of a particular kind of state where the laws of physics, the laws of behavior are functioning within a completely different realm is maybe a little too complicated of a reason why there appears to be hypnotic control. Gold Diamond also argued that hypnotic control could be accounted for when considering instructional control, right? So that's a little bit of what Shane talked about, whereas, you know, people that um, maybe have some sort of learning history or are somehow more susceptible to listening to a person, um, whether or not, you know, it's a person in power or if it's, you know, someone they're close to, or maybe, you know, it's someone who is seeking out therapeutic intervention and because you know they're they're seeking out therapy they go to someone that is a therapist they're already in a place where they're just more likely to follow what that therapist tells them to do so he also accounted for that as well so that's all to say you know lang who's a student of of dr israel gold diamond he summarized it best when he stated that Quote, they showed that hypnosis did not alter perception, but simply brought the indicator behavior under control of the hypnotist's instructions. So just to sort of say what what it sounds like this showed then was that it wasn't that people were necessarily having the experience that was um, being, I guess, touted or purported to have happened by the hypnotist, but rather they were reacting to whatever the uh, hypnotist was saying. And that that's sort of the overarching theme of this is that with the hypnotic suggestion is not that you're actually changing someone's experience or their reaction to things as much as you are simply telling them essentially what to do and having them follow that instruction. Is that about what that what's being? I think that... Yeah, I think that's a great summary. And so, you know, it's it's really, we account for that mix of predisposition and then also language. So, you know, certain words that are used within a hyp- hypnotic session, you know, are loaded for some people. They have different meaning or they are there, can be linked back to different experiences. And um, this can also evoke behavior that looks like what can be thought of as, as altered through hypnosis. And that's something, you know, that Gold Diamond really uh, touted as an explanation for this responding uh, as well. So ultimately what you're looking at is you've got this situation where people who need rules just need to be told these rules and then they can engage in their own behavior to follow the rules that are set forth by the hypnotist. Essentially, that's one account for sure. And, um, you know, if we, if we look at some of the therapeutic effects that do have some science backing them up, you know, I think that that arrangement does account for a lot of that. It makes me wonder if people would could become more or less sensitive to suggestion of a hypnotist by altering or specifically having a developmental history with respect to rule following. And so you might like have someone who would otherwise not be particularly susceptible to being hypnotized if you have them practice being uh really consciously following rules a lot if that would then alter the extent to which they would be more likely to follow these rules whereas if you have someone who's likely to hear some kind of statement or rule and question it and have most of the thing that they do their habit is to hear something and not do it right away but sort of think about it and make a choice about how they're going to react to it it seems like that automatically tells you that that's a characteristic of someone who's less likely to be 
influenced by something like hypnotism. And um, it just makes me think about, you know, what are the factors and the variables inside of someone's learning history that would uh, help account for this? And could we actually do that study where we alter the extent to which someone is likely to um, be receptive to hypnotism and the attempts of hypnotism to change their behavior? I agree with that. And, you know, and that's just all in the name of, you know, effective therapeutic intervention across the board with everyone and something that isn't studied enough, right, is, you know, really identifying which approaches are going to be best for a person based on various factors, you know, their history with certain things, you know, the the issue that they're trying to deal with. And yeah, I think that's definitely something worthwhile looking into. And I think also just one more point on this is if it was so effective that you could definitively have behavior change simply by putting someone in hypnosis, then why wouldn't everyone in the world be clamoring for this? You know, the have people who want to exercise more or diet better or quit some habit that they have or uh, put more time towards something that they just find themselves always procrastinating on. Like that would be the most lucrative profession in the world is to be a hypnotist, you know, because everyone wants to change their behavior. Almost everyone wants to change their behavior in one way or another. You know, I think all of us can think of a, a way that we'd like to improve upon how we generally go about, uh, about the world. And w- we know that there is a way to do it, but generally it takes a lot of hard work. And that's, you know, it's sort of like the, the quacks who deal with uh, pseudoscientific medicine who offer you the, their, you know, just give me $10,000 and I'll give you my, uh, magic sock sweat pill that you can take and that's going to cure whatever disease you have. I don't even care what disease you have. Just, you know, take this and it'll fix it. Um, and so if you had something that powerful, man, like that, that should be everywhere, I would think. So, you know, it's not to say that there's nothing to hypnosis as we've sort of uncovered in here that there are, there is some research to support the idea that this can be effective here and there for some people in certain situations. And it's maybe not just the hypnosis, but maybe something, you know, a combination of factors that affect how well this is, this is likely to work. Um, and that that's the important thing to know is that it's not just this magical treatment that can do anything. Exactly. So, you know, that's our first take home, which is that there, it might be effective for some people and, um, it likely depends on that individual's learning history, their experience, and also, you know, the the research is still out um, on its efficacy across diagnosis and just general issues that it could potentially treat. And so it does seem to be that there are some promising applications to things like pain management, but the research is just sparse in that regard. All right. And so as far as trans states go, uh, there's not, there are some accounts that suggest that some people are susceptible to induction into these states. Uh, again, it's, it's likely it's due to some prior learning history or other predispositions. So if somebody has been exposed to that type of learning history previously or um, that type of condition, they may be more likely to uh, fall into those trans states based on that. And I feel like it's good to end on the fact that we talk a lot about on this show sort of having a skepticism towards some things. Um, you know, that's sort of a, a theme of why we do what we do is approaching these psychological concepts and ideas with a certain amount of skepticism and, and promoting that. You know, we, we want other people to approach these ideas with a certain level of skepticism. Um, and this is another example of that when it's, it's good to be skeptical and, of course, to look at this as fairly as possible and see what the evidence suggests. And uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, that some people are a little bit um, more likely to for this to work, um, and some of them are. And we come at this where 
maybe not us, but you know, there are people who are going to hear this and immediately when they see hypnosis, it, their thought is like, this is totally bunk and, uh, and just dismiss it. And that's not totally inappropriate. I can see where they're coming from on that. And, uh, and there are others that are, uh, look at this and say, you know, this is absolutely real and this is, you know, God's gift to the world. And I can understand that, that general orientation to it as well. And it's really just about promoting the idea of, of thinking about this critically and, and being mindful of what's the evidence and that, you know, right now, as you said, the evidence is, is kind of mixed. We don't really know how it works or what, when it works and, uh, the extent to which it works. And so that's just something to know that it's, there's, there's a lot more to understand about this process and whether or not there's something there. And, uh, and if there isn't, then, you know, I think that we can, we would be able to accept that. And if there is, then we can accept that too. At the end of the day, it's worth looking at further. Right. Exactly. Right. So with that, anything else to add guys? I think I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. This is Miranda. This is Abraham. And it's a shame. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.